Open up your Bibles. We're in Genesis. Surprise. But we're not in Genesis 12. Praise the Lord. All right. We're in Genesis 13. The Abraham portion of Genesis, chapters 12 through 22, 23, somewhere in there, this it has a relatively small cast of characters. Um, there is obviously Abraham and Sarah. The, the entire section revolves around them. There's Hagar and her son Ishmael. There is this priest named Melchizedek who is only mentioned once in the section, but he's kind of an important dude. There is um, a group of kings, foreign kings, that we hear about from time to time. And then there's Lot. Lot. The nephew, Lot. Lot, you know, if you remember the Munsters, right? And Marianne. Remember Marianne and the Munsters? All the Munsters were weird, but Marianne was the blonde normal one. Lot's the one who stands out in this entire story. And understanding him and figuring out why he's in this story and what there is to learn from his life is, an, is kind of an important thing. And we're going to take our time this morning and do exactly that. If you're familiar with Lot, familiar with this story, can you give me maybe a word that you would use to characterize him? Talk to me. Self-seeking, very good. Anyone else got a word or two for me? Carnal, very good. Greedy, very good. All right. Overwhelmed, thank you. I agree, probably, that's true. And then this section over here, you're quiet. You need to, you need to pony up something. What? Opportunist. I think those are all really, really good words for Lot. But the word that none of you used is righteous. Is righteous. We're going to look at this passage, and we're not going to find that in this passage. And yet God's word still says righteous Lot. And now, so we have two things here we need to reconcile a little bit, right? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to attempt to do that a little bit. I think that Lot, in some regards, he, he's a very hard guy to understand. We meet him first in Genesis eleven twenty-seven. You don't have to track with me all these, but I'm going to kind of walk us through how we meet him. We meet him in eleven twenty-seven, and in eleven twenty-seven, it's very simply just like talking about the family of Abram, and it says that this is family. This is Abram's father, you know, and then it says this is his brothers, and his brother had a son named Lot, and that's the first time we hear about him. And then in chapter 12, 4, when Abram leaves Ur and he moves into Canaan, it says that Lot went with him. And we also learn somewhere in there that his father has died. Chapter 13, verse 1, mentions that he is with Abram when he's escorted out of Egypt. And so far, so far he's just a name. But in chapter 13, verses 5 through 13, we get a little bit more of an understanding and it's this section here where we begin to get exactly what you describe him as being. So if you want to read along with me, chapter 13, verse 5 is where I'm going to be. <clears throat> now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife be- between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Pezzarite were also dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between our herdsmen, my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. And if to the right, then I will go to the left. And now Lot shows his colors. 
Verse 10. So Lot lifts up his eyes. He saw the, the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. Really, really interesting that God put that little comment in there, isn't it? He's mentioning Sodom and Gomorrah when he mentions Lot, right? So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. So Abraham settled in the lot of the Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. Well, so this is the area of Canaan, the techno. So there, here it is. We learn that Sodom has decided to take the center valley, and he's moved in there, and it says he took his tents as far as Sodom. And it says that they're exceedingly wicked. Basically, not only has he proven himself to be somewhat opportunistic, but he's also proven himself to be somewhat careless. As he's chosen to live right on the edge. Now, I want to pause right here. And do you remember last week we talked about um, whenever we read, that, whenever the text says that they're going down into Egypt. And we talked about how going down into Egypt was usually a reference to man trying to solve their own problems and it never ended well. Well, the text here today has another little thing in it as well like that. And you see it in chapter 13, verse 11. It says, Lot journeyed eastward. It's just, just those three words. So you're wondering, so what's the big deal? Well, this phrase are similar phrases like this are little signs that each time they occur, they're pointing to something else. And we only know that because every time we read journeyed eastward, we see something happen. So, for instance, it's like this. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have just sinned, and they leave the garden, and they journey eastward. Cain, chapter 4, has just killed his brother, and he's been reproached by God, and what does he do? He journeys eastward. Here we are, in chapter 13, and here's Lot, and what does he do? He journey eastward. And then finally, um, all this is building up to a day in the future when the nation of Israel has sinned and gone horribly in rebellion against God. And what happens to them? They are led eastward into captivity in Babylon. Those little phrases, journey eastward, go eastward, are little phrases that mean those people are going into trouble, whoever they are, or they're in trouble. And so just make that little note in your Bible that whenever you read those words, it's giving you a sign, a signal about something that's coming up, all right? So, now then, the next time we read about Lot is in chapter 14. And in chapter 14, it's the story of a little warfare that happens there. Some foreign kings make an alliance, uh, and, and they come together, and they overrun the region in which Lot is living. And Abraham takes his men. He goes in. He defeats these kings. He rescues Lot and returns him back. But then there's this extraordinary event in, in chapter 18. So flip over to chapter 18 with me. And let me set the, the story up. What has happened is, is two men, and basically the Lord shows up, and they have this conversation with 
Abraham, and they again reaffirm the covenant that God has made with Abraham. And as they're leaving this time together, one of them says, shall we tell Abraham what's about to happen? He is our friend, you know. And so they say, well, we're going down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because in verse 20 of 18, it says, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. And they're basically going down to punish, to, to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy them. And here you see this really interesting thing that I don't really know what to make of it because I didn't know you could do this with God or that he would do this with you or me. He's not done it with me before. And that's, all of a sudden, Abraham becomes like a used car salesman. He's like going, wait a minute, are you going to destroy? If anyone's in here a used car salesman, I have the deepest respect for you, all right? Man, you just have to watch what you say up here, all right? Um, and Abraham says to him, so you're going to go down and destroy these cities? What happens if there's 50 righteous people in the cities? Are you going to destroy them? And he goes, okay, okay, I won't. Not for 50. But Abraham knows that that's a stretch. And then he works down. He goes, okay, 40. And God goes, okay. Abraham knows it's still a stretch. And they do this, 30, 20, and then finally 10. And God at 10 says this. Okay, if there's 10. But in, tucked in this passage, and I think that I've, I've referred to this before, is really, really one of my favorite verses. And I've had to apply it to my heart sometimes when I'm doubting and when I'm struggling with things. Uh, verse 25. Uh, Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? In other words, God's going, I- I'll do right. I'll do right by whatever's going on down there. And you know what? That's, that, is a great, that is a great statement. Isn't it? That there are times in your life when you're like going, how's this going to work out? What's this going to look like? And, and you look to Scripture and you find a verse that says, will not the, you know, I'd memorize it in a different version. Will not, the, will not the judge of the universe do right? You know, you take that and go, by faith I really believe that. I don't understand this situation. It doesn't look good to me at all. But by faith I believe that you will do right. And you just cling on to that stuff, right? So then he's, Abraham has negotiated a, a deal with God. And he says, okay, if there's 10 down there, you won't destroy it. Chapter 19. Chapter 19 is one crazy story. And when this chapter closes, we won't hear from Lot ever again until we get to 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, and Peter, in that chapter, in his second letter, he makes one comment about Lot. But let's look through chapter 19 real quick here before we do that. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you may rise early and and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in the city square. But he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. Before they lay down, the, city, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old and all the people from every quarter. And they came to Lot and said to him, Where are the men 
that came to you tonight. You bring them out. We want to have relations with them. Now, let me just clean that up for you. They're, they're here, and they're saying, we want to have sex with them. In other words, we're going to rape them. Bring them out. But Lot said to them, he, he, but Lot went out, to the, went out to them, and he shut the door, and he says, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. So right there, you're like going, dude, he's a stand-up guy. He's trying to protect his guests. Keep reading. <laughs> Verse 8. Now behold, I have two daughters who, have not, who are virgins, he's saying. Please let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you want with them. Only do nothing to these men, and as they are under my roof, under the shelter of my roof, But they said, stand aside. And furthermore, they said, this one came in here as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge? Now we would treat you worse than them. And so they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot in the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both great and small, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Now the men said to Lot, who else do you have here? A son-in-law, sons, daughters, whoever of you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to, to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord would destroy the city. But they appeared to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Well, here's some observations we want to make about this. First of all, we find... Lot sitting in the city gate. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to find many of the cities, many of the ruins have this, this spot that was the gate, the, the entrance to the village. And there'd be like a, a spot where you would sit. And Lot was sitting in that place. And so apparently Lot was a man of influence of some sort or another. He, he had become like a leading citizen of some sort. And so he's sitting there. And when these two guys enter in, they immediately, he immediately offers them hospitality, which is expected culturally. You know, it's like when, a, when a, um, one of the studies I did on the culture says, when a man took a stranger in, he was bound to protect him even at the expense of his own life. So as these two men enter in and Lot is sitting, sitting there, knowing what this city is like, you wonder if Lot really encouraged them to stay with him because he knew what was going to happen if they stayed in a square. One commentator even went so far as to say that Lot was sitting in the gate to catch guests, to catch strangers, to protect them. Now, that's a stretch because there's nowhere in the text that it gives us that, that information. But it'd be nice to think that about him because you're looking for good things to think about Lot. But that's what one person suggests. Notice that the text is emphasizing the extent of the wickedness of the city. It says the men of the city, both the young and the old, from every quarter. So it's just not those on the other side of the tracks. It's just not those guys. He says that this wickedness is from every aspect of the city. All quarters. And in verse 6, Lot's character, notice his character as he defends his guests. But in verse 8, that lack of character as he offers the men his own daughters. And what is even worse is he didn't just offer his own daughters, he offered 
other men's engaged wives. The men, the girls were engaged in the context of, of Jewish culture. They were betrothed in such a way that they were literally married, although they had not consummated yet. And anything they would have done to have violated that vow would have been as much as adultery. And so here he is. He goes, these two women, they're betrothed. They're almost like being married, but they've not consummated yet, so you can have them. And so he's not just offended his daughters. He's offended these men as well. And then the townspeople turn on Lot. Don't judge us. We'll treat you worse than the strangers. And now all of a sudden, the protected become the protectors as the strangers pull Lot back in the house and strike the attackers with blindness. And the strangers now reveal why they're there. They're angels, and they've come to destroy, to punish the city. Let's keep reading verse 15. And then moving, and then morning dawned, and the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, take your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. You need to underline that verse. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon them. You need to underline that verse too. For the compassion of the Lord was upon them, and they brought them out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. lest Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have magnified your loving kindness to us, which you have shown by saving my life. But I cannot escape to those mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, there's a town nearby. May I flee to it? It is small. Please, let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? And he said to them, Behold, I grant you this request, also not to overtake that town which you have, heard, you have spoken. So hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord sent out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham rose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Hmm. Notice Verse 16, the very first thing that Lot does is he hesitates. Verse 18, he resists. Verse 19, he negotiates. Here's a dude that is being rescued, and he gives the rescuers all this static. You learn a little bit more about Lot in that, don't you? He wasn't sure if he wanted to be rescued, was he? Because he hesitated. And then he resists. He says, oh, you know, I don't want to go over there. I want to go over here. Lot, God carries out his judgment in verse 25. And, you know, inevitably, this little passage here about 
brimstone and fire. That's the kind of thing that people always want to know. Well, what was that? It was brimstone and fire, and it destroyed them. That's what it was, all right? It's like, does it matter what it was? The point is not what it was. The point is that God has judgment on sin, and he carries it out. And this is an example of him carrying it out to its fullest. Matter of fact, this is an example, not only of him carrying it out to its fullest, but like you will read about Sodom and Gomorrah throughout Scripture as the standard for wickedness. It will always be referred to as that is the, that is the epitome of wickedness, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so I know that human nature is kind of like, well, then how do you get all the animals on the boat and all these other things, all these human nature questions. But the point is not that. The point is that God judges sin seriously. So Lot's wife disobeys and she dies. And we close this passage with Abraham looking out and seeing the fire raising up, not knowing Lot's fate, but believing God to be true. Now, let's just summarize what's happened so far. Because it seems like a night of the living dead here, kind of, you know, where these guys come out and they're, and they're all clamoring around and they're chasing down this door and they're trying to break through the door, but it's not zombies. It's sexually addicted homosexual rapists whose behavior is of the most debased type. And in addition to the mob, a man has just offered his two daughters as a ransom to the strangers. And a city and all of its inhabitants have been destroyed. And now, in verse 30 and 38, as if this story couldn't get any worse, it does. Lot went up from Zoar, verse 30, and stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him, for they were afraid to stay in Zoar. And he stayed in a cave, and, he, and his two daughters. And then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There is not a man on earth to come into us to have after the manner of the earth. In other words, he's really old, and it looks like we're stuck in this cave, and I want babies. And there's no one around to have a baby with. And basically they're looking at him, casting an eye to him. Verse 32, so let's make our father drink wine and let's lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn lay, went in and lay with their father and he did not know when she lay down and when she had rose. And when it came about on the morning that the firstborn said to the younger, behold, look what I did last night, you should do it tonight too. So they made their father drink, verse 35, wine that night and the younger rose and she went and lay with him and, did not, and, and he did not know when she lay down or when she rose up. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with children by their father. Their firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of Moabites to this day. And as for the younger, she also bore a son, and his name was called Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. And you just kind of go, praise God that chapter's over. It sounds like the scene from some kind of alcohol-drenched college party, except for it's not guys trying to, to sleep with girls who are drunk. It's girls doing it to their father. You wonder why Lot didn't go and live with Abraham. Abraham was close enough to see the fire, but he didn't do that. And it's just one more bad choice by Lot. 
So imagine like this. The smoke of the destruction is still in the air. And here is Lot in this town that has been spared the destruction. And folks have to know who he is and where he came from. And so in other words, given everything that's just happened, the folks of Zoar are asking lots of questions. And I would imagine it'd be a little bit uncomfortable, don't you? So Lot finds a cave where there's no one to question him. There's no one to ask about the events that has just happened. And it's in this remote setting that sets up the most horrible, heartbreaking way to end a story. Lot fathers his own grandsons and can't even remember that it happened. Now, turn in your Bible to 2 Peter. You're in the very first book of the Bible. Now flip over to the latter books of the Bible. 2 Peter 2. And in 2 Peter 2, Peter makes a very quick, kind of offhand kind of comment. It's almost like a, a passing comment. But in doing so, <laughs> he just kind of adds more questions to this story, actually. Second Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. Here, Peter is talking about God rescuing men. And he says, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, and you're like going, is that a typo? Righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of the unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. He doesn't call him righteous once. He calls him righteous three times. So by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God instructs Peter to write this letter. And in doing so, he says, And mention Lot, my righteous man, from Genesis chapter 19. Do you think that Peter's like going, excuse me, who? You mean Abraham. He goes, no, I mean Lot. Write him down and what he suffered and how I rescued him. The only hint to why Lot might be considered as to be found righteous is found in Genesis 19. We read it a moment ago. Genesis 19. And this is what some of the commentators and theologians and people say. Uh, is the reason why Lot is righteous. Genesis nineteen twenty nine, And it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. When it's, it's like he, 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 he gave Abraham's righteousness on Lot. It says, he remembered Abraham, and he rescued Lot. Lot was raised by Abraham. He was taught to fear God. He was taught to obey God. You notice I said he was taught to. It doesn't mean he always did. That's the way it is with me, too. He was taught to obey God. He was taught to fear God. He saw Abraham make his mistakes as well as, as, what, it was, what, it was look, what it looked like to demonstrate great obedience and great faith in God. So based on Peter's comment, God considered Lot a man of faith. 
Now, let's be honest. This series of chapters is a character study, a really fascinating study when you take a step back and you look at it as a whole. Because we're introduced to Abraham, a man of great faith who makes mistakes along the way, but still considered a man of great faith. And we're introduced to Lot, a man that we have no real indication of his faith, and he makes a lot of mistakes, but he's still called a man of faith as well. A great contrast, isn't there? I have to admit, I am absolutely Lot's great, 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 great grandson. If I'm going to identify with anyone in this chapter, it's going to be Lot. Not because of the kind of sins that he had, but because of his flailing nature. But because of him one, in one moment saying, I have to protect these men. And in the very next moment, I'll throw my daughters out there to them. In one moment, having the courage to stand up to the crowd. And the next moment, be a whimpering, self-centered, resistant, hesitating guy. He's definitely my great-grandfather. He is definitely my great-grandfather. Because that's who I am. In any moment, feeling really proud... Yeah, even that. Feeling really proud of maybe my faith. And the very next moment, like, cussing and, 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 and defaming and being rude and wrong toward others. Yeah, Lot is definitely my great-grandfather. But I think that all of y'all my cousins <laughs> is what I think. The question is this, do you see yourself in Lot? I do. I see myself in Lot. He's the classic example of what is considered a carnal Christian, one that has fallen in love with the world and divides the loyalty between the world and the Lord. And instead of being in the the world and not of it, they are in it and they're loving it. Did you get that? Lot, you know, we're called to be in the world but not of it, Romans. But Lot's not that. Lot is in the world, and he's loving it. He's liking everything he likes about it. And, you know, and, and I understand him. I love the bright lights. I love the little things that go around and around and around. And Lot was just that way. He moved to the city. And that's what got him in trouble. I found one pastor who had a, couple, a few good suggestions that I want to share with you about how do we know when we are living in Sodom. How do we know when we're living in Sodom? He gave three tests for ourselves. When we're living for the same goals as the world. When our goals are the same as the world. If I claim to follow Jesus, but my goals are the same as the guy living next door to me, what does that tell me? What are your goals? Where did you get them? Was your, is your goal, and this is, this is, I mean, this is us. Our goal is to have a good job. 
Our goal is, is to live, I just want to be comfortable. I don't need a whole lot. I just want to be able to pay the bills. But then we keep adding to the bills, right? I just don't want to worry about money that much. I want to put my kid in a situation where they can get good grades. I want to be in the best school district. That's going to cost you, which means you're going to have to work, which means you're not at home, which means you're not discipling your kids, which means your kids end up like lots of daughters. I just want them to get good grades. I don't want them to go to that other school district. What's it going to cost you to put them in this school district? You know, I want my kids to have all the same opportunities as all their neighbors, so that's why we go to soccer every Sunday morning. So sorry about that. But I've told you before, you need to have your kids here in Sunday school. You need to be here in church. And if soccer's on Sunday morning, put them in baseball on Friday nights and Thursday nights and Tuesdays. Because this is where you need to be. Not because of me. (laughs) I'm no big shakes. But this is where you need to be because we're together as the body of Christ and this is what he's instructed us to do. But if you feel compelled to have to have them out, I'd say you're living in Sodom. One of the goals of Christians should be to love him and to please him above all other things. To live daily, to serve him. If, if our goals get in the way of that, then our goals are the wrong goals. You're living in Sodom, and you need to make arrangements to move out. If you're Morals change based on the situation. It's easy to have morals when it doesn't cost you very much or when it's easy. But what about when it's going to cost you a client? What about when it costs you business or good grades or the favor of your boss or the favor of your teacher or the cool kids in class? When your morals change based on the situation, you're living in Sodom and you need to move out. What about when the world doesn't respect you for your Christian values. Do your coworkers know you're a Christian? Do your neighbors? Worse yet, actually, is that they know you're a Christian and they really don't believe it because of the way you act and behave. They look at what you post online and they go, wow, that looks just what I post online. I guess I'm a Christian too. When our values are not something they respect, when it's not something that they consider when you're in the room. You know, there are some people in my life that when they walk in the room, I change because I respect them so much. Is that anything kind of what happens with you at all? Do they know you're a Christian and do they think, oh, I won't tell that joke, I got a, another dumb one I'll tell with him in the room. I don't know. If that's the case, if that's the case, then you're living in Sodom and you need to move out. This week in our small group, Bud Siotti led us in a discussion of Ephesians 4.25, and that passage has this phrase, and it says, lay aside falsehood and speak truth to one another. And the passage is encouraging us to live and speak truth to each other, to live, among, to live with each other in such a way that we're honest about who we are, not putting on airs or masks to look better than we are, or to give others the idea that we're more spiritual than we are. None of us have it all together. None of us should act like it. None of uh, Each of us should be working daily to follow Christ as best we can. And some will be further down the road than others, 
but we're all on the road. But Lot's life highlights the other problem Christians get into. And it's not that they're acting to impress, but it's that they're their behavior is so poor that they look like everyone else. Like it says up there, it's not that we act like we are better than everyone else, it's that we act like everyone else and everyone else is living like hell. And that's what we look like. That's the case. We're living in Sodom and we need to move out. Christian, our lives should be different than the world's. but we're not supposed to be more than we are. Finally, what should stand out in this passage is the mercy and the love of God. The passage speaks of the compassion of God and the loving kindness of God and and the mercy that he has towards those in the story. And if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, let me just tell you a really blunt statement. If you're here today and you've never placed your your faith in Christ, you're only here today because of God's mercy on you. He is having compassion on you a little bit longer so that you understand the death and the resurrection of Christ on your behalf, so that you can begin to learn to think differently, to believe differently. Because more than likely, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, you're here believing that you can live good enough to please God. You're here believing that, like, I'm not really sure what's going to happen in the afterlife, but I think I can manage it because I'm basically a good guy. And God's going, that way of thinking is going to cost you in the end because it's not true. God is saying, that way of thinking is faulty. And I'm just letting you live a little while longer until you hear the truth and you respond to it. Every day that you have is a day for you to consider the claims of Christ and to place your faith in him and to understand that his son died so that you don't have to die for your sins. There's a penalty that you owe for your sins. His son paid it. God's saying, I'm giving you a little bit of mercy so that you can change what you believe, so that you can understand that you can't do it, and Jesus did. Believe that and receive eternal life. I'm giving you the mercy. I'm giving you the next breath in your lung so you can believe that. This morning, Christian, if you look and smell just like everyone else around you, you got a problem. Folks, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, you've got a problem. But to both of those situations, the mercy of God is extended. And to those who have never trusted in Christ yet, he says, come on home. Come on home. I'd love to forgive you of sin and wash the guilt and the shame and all your past away and have a thriving, real relationship with you. To those of us who are living like hell, he's like going, stop that. Come on home. I welcome prodigals back every day. Come on home. Come on home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you very much for mercy we cannot explain. We thank you very much for compassion that is unending. I cannot wrap my head around who you are or the way you behave. But what I do understand is this, is that you love me 
and every person in this room, and you extend mercy and loving kindness and compassion to all of us, desiring that we respond to you, desiring that we come home to you and begin to follow you in a way of service, begin to follow you in a way of of humility and give our lives over to you. Thank you, Father, for the example of Lot, my great-great-great-grandfather, and that you treat me as good as you treated him. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.